Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Philomena, Gloria, Singing in the Rain, Nymphomaniac Part 1. By the way, those are on the same day. Quite a double bill. Alan Partridge, The Lunchbox, and more. At the E-Bar this week, on April 18th, Kazoo presents Lady Hawk, Marine Dreams, and Dutch Toko for an exciting all-ages show. I mean, I'm going to be there. That's exciting in itself, right? For me... The Bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Visit bookshelf.ca for more information. Creative Control with Beach well, here we are. It's the penultimate episode of the Jesus Lizard Week celebrations that have been going on on this program to commemorate the release of Book, which is out now via Akashic Books, uh, a great publisher based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, book is a photo book, essay book, oral history, essentially, of the Jesus Lizard, one of my favorite bands. Uh, I've been very fortunate to feature uh, individual interviews with each member of the band. Thus far, you've heard from Mac McNeely, the drummer of the Jesus Lizard, You've heard from David Yao, the vocalist. So we're down to two, aren't we? Here today, electrifying guitarist Dwayne Dennison and I have a chat about the band and uh, how they're depicted in book and their legacy. It gets a little tense, more tense than any other conversation you'll see, but uh, I think it's a great chat. So here it is, myself and Dwayne Dennison talking about the Jesus Lizard. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally... 
I like the gourmet domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio? Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. This book took quite a while for it to happen. Um, the initial idea, I believe, came from David Sims and Johnny Temple at Akashic. Um, you know, rock band bios aren't new, but we, I think, felt like we wanted to do it a little differently and spend a little more time and have it, you know, really look good and be edited well so it read well and try to be as honest and straightforward on things as possible. And as well as getting, um, soliciting, shall we say, contributions from musicians, writers, etc., and let them say their, their piece, whether we necessarily agree with it or not. You know, on the other hand, we have the right to edit things, mm-hmm. as we did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, allow people to speak, and, and ourselves. And um, we're fortunate... Um, you know, we had band members who were fairly articulate, and, uh, you know, David Sims was pretty good at collecting and keeping track of data and photos and things. And uh, um, for me personally, some of this, some of my um, contributions and things were tempered by the contributions I had made to the reissues that Touch and Go, when we reissued our back catalog in 2009 to coincide with the reunion tour. Mm-hmm. And that I, I wrote a lot of verbal pieces for that and contributed, you know, different photos and things. So uh, it was interesting how, to me, how this would happen with the book and not repeat ourselves. But um, I think it worked out just fine. You, you feel like you, you I, I thought of that, too. I mean, I remember when I when I got the uh, vinyl reissues, like, yeah, there's just a lot of content in there, a lot of reflection. And, and I guess I, and I understand that this, uh, this book was years in the making, um, and I appreciate that. But it does seem like, yeah, you've been in a, this reflective mode about this 10-year arc of this band. And it, it, there was a point, though, last year, for instance, 2013, I was playing with my band um, Tomahawk, and we had an album out, and we're touring a lot. So finishing up, you know, there was a lot of things that got done, frankly, without me being too much involved. I said, look, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not even home half this year, so... Mm-hmm please go ahead. And, and, you know, they were running with it. Um, David Sims and David Yao are really good with, uh, you know, editing things and writing and editing and Photoshopping and all that stuff, much more so than I am. So, uh, you know, they didn't necessarily need me to tell them that. Right. Okay. I see. I, I actually wondered about that because there seems to be, as the book progresses, you in particular eventually seem to, to drop, well, David Yao as well, seems to and and I talked to him about this his contributions seem to decrease as the book goes on 
and and yours too. I feel I found I found that by the end it was mostly David Sims, uh, okay. ta- uh from the band anyway, talking and uh, addressing things. I, I was. It sounds like that was just a matter of circumstance uh, more than anything else. Yeah, for me, um, it was two things. It was the fact that I was gone a lot last year, and I wrote a lot of things for the um, the liner notes of the reissues. And if you go back and look, I don't think David Sims wrote anything. So that's right. He had more. Yeah, he had more to say um, on this at this point in time than we did. Right, and that's fine. Yeah, no, it's 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 it seems relatively evenly balanced, but it is something I noticed as the book. Pro- the book has kind of an odd structure, right? In that it's, I think it's an oral history, in a sense, but certain people appear once and can they'll write a passage that might cover the entire history of the band in one essay. You know what I mean? Um, as opposed to kind of a lot of oral histories, like you'll talk to someone and that person will appear chronologically. You know, with their when, sure. when they're talking about something of a certain era, though, but the, this one you you could be reading about the band's earliest days, and then someone will someone else will appear the one time and mention that you know they went to Capitol and they did all this stuff, and you're like kind of jumping around, um, which is an odd. It's kind of an interesting structure that way. Hmm. I hadn't really analyzed it that closely. <laughs> I was too busy looking at the all the pictures I'd never seen. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not even second guessing it, but it is an interesting approach to the oral structure the oral history structure um because as i say you're jumping through time a little bit um i i started off by suggesting that uh, there's a lot of revealing information here for fans sometimes a project like this can teach you a lot more about your bandmates than you may have realized were there any particular revelations for you about uh uh you know biographical insights or just uh, or, or opinions about records that you that that surprised you no, <laughs> no. Uh, keep in mind, we spent an awful lot of time together over that ten years, and there wasn't much about each other that we didn't know. Right, you were a very close knit group at one point. I mean, when you were living in Chicago, that co- that that's something that I found interesting. When you were all living together in a house, I think somebody suggests it might have been your your most productive and an interesting period because you were kind of all over each other and had no choice but to work. Yeah, I mean, we'd go on tour and we'd be on top of each other, I mean, literally 24 hours a day, and then come home and we're still all together. And that gradually decreased over time as people slowly became more independent and could afford to move out and, you know. But we even at that point, we stayed within literally a few minutes of each other. Right. So, um, yeah, we were tight. To me, um that was yeah. I, I don't think that uh, obviously at my at my this point in my life, and being so much older, that can't happen again, you know. <laughs> but to me, to me, that's how that's kind of how a band should work. And when I look at the bands that I like or that I think are great, um, they usually have a period where that is exactly what happens. It, a lot of times, you simply can't afford to have a place of your own, so you move in with the guys you're working with and. That house becomes your work area as well. Yeah, and uh, that's that's how it is. <laughs> and did you, when you say that after appear uh, at some point there was a everyone could kind of afford to live elsewhere? Did you notice a drop off in not in camaraderie but in productivity and uh, how the band? Um, worked? A little bit later, yes, I did. Um, when 
Mac and David Yao got married, and then they Mac moved to Evanston, which is a little north of Chicago, and David Yao bought a house in Crown Point, Indiana, which is like, depending on the time of day and the traffic, you know, an hour, hour, hour and a half east of Chicago. Uh-huh. Um, and that slowed things down. Okay. And then just to clarify, Mac and David did not marry one another. <laughs> you 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 did say they got married. I just want people to r- yes. recognize that they didn't marry. They didn't get married to one another. That's just uh, well. No, why would they get married and then live in separate houses? I, it's the Jesus lizard. Anything's possible. I don't know. It, okay. It could, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, for some folks, the Jesus lizard is a real um, musicians' band. Every member is, I think, regarded as one of the best to, to ever do what they did uh, or continue to do. And I, I've never pondered this too much i'm a huge fan of the band i love the band i'm a musician myself but i never dwelled on it uh, that much i just recognize that people are like yeah like everyone's super amazing uh, it is interesting that y- I-, I find that in the book yourself and david sims spend a lot of time almost addressing musicians you know talking in terms that maybe only players might appreciate discussing your gear discussing music theory and chord progressions and things like that can you mm-hmm. can you talk about why it's important for you to convey that information? It's almost instructional, I think, and I'm, I'm curious if yeah. is that is that the point? Well, I can't speak for David Sims, but I've always kind of felt like that's that was part of the deal. And, and when I think of the musicians that I like that I find are interesting, you know, they they talk about what they like and what they listen to and what the nuts and bolts of the music itself, what the melodies are coming from, where the chords are coming from. I like to hear that. Um, It takes, I I think it goes a long way toward explaining that a lot of it is work. You know, you, you listen to things, you study things and then you work at it. It's not just some magical, mysterious process. Right. Um, there's a, obviously there's a lot to be said for inspiration and there's a lot to be said for people who work strictly from an intuitive um, standpoint and who ha- don't seemingly have a certain method or or any sort of craft, if you will, to fall back on. But I just like to show people, I think it's important for kids to see, kids or other musicians, whatever, that you know your inspiration and ideas eventually the, that that's not always going to be there and you have to have some sort of thing you can use to help develop them or take them to a new thing and, and new place and expand things. And we, this is, and this is, I said, these are our, our examples, I guess you could say, hmm. um, you know, um, it's not rocket science, but on the other hand, it's not just, dumb luck or it's not just you know sheer rockness man there's a certain sort of abstract thought involved in these things no certainly and that that comes across in the book and i think in the certainly in the music and on the records i mean there's no there's never a doubt in my mind that you guys haven't figured out what you're going to do like uh, you know sometimes a band can have great players in it but it doesn't cohere necessarily and the Jesus Lizard is always a band where I'm like, yeah, it's four unique individuals, but there's something about the power and the chemistry of them. Some of this is cliche, I understand, but 
there's something about the union here that is to me and to people like me was very extraordinary and oh well, thank you well yeah you're welcome and i think that when you're but my question i suppose is also that like when you're talking about when someone is a fan of the band i guess there's a point here where someone interested in the jesus lizard might be interested in sort of the nuts and bolts maybe more so than a casual music fan because when i'm reading these passages i'm like i wonder what a normal like casual listener of music or fan would think of all this detail you know about a, a set like a cabinet like a speaker cabinet or a or a you know as i say a music theory but i think that it might be integral to the band like conveying that and the people who the band resonates with might actually appreciate that is that do do you feel that yeah i do um i i kind of i think that this you know once again, we were not a hugely popular audience or a hugely popular band. It was not like mass sales. We were not, we did not have gold records or platinum records. We did not win Grammys. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like there was this huge floating market of casual listeners buying our records. If you remember in that time, that was indie rock was very much fueled by college radio. Um, the places we played were definitely places that were hooked into like, you know, college radio, college towns, um, the underground scene. It was a smart scene. Yeah. It was, it was somewhat elitist in a way. It was not, you did not see, you know, people wearing Bon Jovi, bon Jovi shirts unless it was ironic. Right. You know what I mean? It was definitely the ironic hipster thing was in full mode. Only back then I like to think the music was harder than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, so it was not a it was not a dumb audience, you know. There was no tolerance for, I don't know, this sort of, uh, I don't know, this sort of hammy theatrical rock and roll, you know, glitzy entertainment thing. This is this scene was a way of escaping that. Right. This was for people who didn't want that. Mm -hmm. We didn't want, you know, the fake glamour and the, you know all or nothing mentality of people who sell, you know, millions and millions of records. This was, this was for people who didn't want that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so putting that, putting those things in the book, you know, the more, you know, musical details and gear details. I, I think for most people, if you, chances are, if you like the Jesus lizard, you, you'll like reading that too. You won't, you won't just skip over it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, that's yeah, I just think it was it was a different time. Yeah, no, that's fair, and I I don't think anyone, as I was formulating the question to you, it kind of dawned on me that the type of fans, just as you said, there's it's a greater likelihood that fans of this band would be totally into that and totally find it helpful in some way. So, yeah, uh, yeah. and it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a nerd fest either. I mean, those were rowdy shows. Mm -hmm. There were, you know what I mean? There were people there who just wanted to drink and get high and rock out with the band and knock into each other and, mm -hmm. you know, knock into grab David Yao. And, you know, we definitely appealed to that angle too, but you know, the lyrics were not dumb. The way we presented the ideas was not heavy handed and, and excessive and dumb. Um, you know what I mean? It, yeah, we, we rocked out and it appealed to people who just wanted to rock out. But at the same time, there was a certain sort of intellectual distance. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. Sure. But it's funny now, you know, I've been playing continuously since then, you know, with various bands and the people who, to me, still seem to hold Tomahawk or Tomahawk, um, the Jesus Lizard in fairly high regard are the ones that I meet are more like metal dudes, you know, because it seems like the Indian underground scene has, to me, has almost disappeared and turned into just a, just like a, a a farm system for pop music. Mm. And and there, and there doesn't seem to be this sort of hard edged sort of punk influenced or post punk scene anymore. If you, so the people who like the Jesus Lizard now, the younger people, are usually into metal. That's interesting. That's, because, you know, because uh, there's nothing else, there's no other hard stuff out there. So when they want to hear something that isn't just what they normally listen to, that stuff like that appeals to them. Right. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I can see, I mean, the, the, as you say, the Jesus are, I think, I think you uh, musically occupy a strange place. It's a, it's a, it's a meeting ground, I think, of punk and metal and you know, hard rock. I mean, I think there's a broad appeal there. And I know what you were saying earlier that the audience was small, but at the same time, it, it I think it really resonated with lots of different kinds of music fans. Yeah, I, I think that when a band becomes popular, and we know we were one of the more popular underground bands of that day. Yeah. Um, but when any band becomes popular, it's because you appeal to, you draw people from the different scenes. Yeah. Like look at like Nine Inch Nails, you know, they had metal, they had industrial, they had electronic dance, you know, yep. whatever. Anyway. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. It's funny that we've struck upon this, this uh, thread about um, elitism and authenticity and intellectualism, because there's a quote from Guy Picciotto in the book about um, just, you know, talking about the band and how much they meant to, to him. But he also strikes upon this word legitimacy. And it, that really jumped out at me. He kind of talks about how, you know, the band didn't, it didn't matter. Like the band was totally le- legitimate in, in a genre where that, that didn't really matter or something. He says something along those lines. But curiously, it, yeah. it really struck a chord with me because I, I feel like legitimacy throughout the band's existence, that became kind of an, a source of tension almost, an issue. And I mean, it really came to the fore after the touch and go period there was a backlash you know what i mean yes when we went to capital yes and and there was a real backlash and when i read particularly david sims throughout the book i feel like he was i mean maybe the rest of you just didn't feel like addressing it but he seems really angry and heartbroken that that happened 
that that sim- that the audience tur- the audience kind of turned on the band even though the band hadn't fundamentally changed. I mean, eventually you lost a member or whatever. Right. So yeah, well, you- I, I actually addressed that too. No, go ahead and finish. Sorry. Well, no, I, 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 I'm that's that's all where I was going with it. I just feel like that to me, the the band represents the the kind of the underground scene of the late mid to late eighties in a lot of ways, and then they also represent what happened to that scene uh, in the in the nineties, which was this kind of I Getting don't know bought out by by the. By the multinational corporations. <laughs> there's that, that whole there's that whole story, right? And I feel like this band is very emblematic of that whole trajectory of being really cool and popular in the underground scene, trying to go mainstream, facing the backlash, and petering out. And that's really right. what it seemed like happened with the band. And that I'd kind of forgotten well, forgotten that until I read this book. Right. Right. Well, I think we were all, David does mention that. I mentioned it too in the book, actually. I was kind of put off by it, the reaction that we got. On the other hand, I expected it. I, I, I had no illusions about about the loyalty of the audience. Um, keep in mind, too, by the time we made that jump, we had already been putting out records for seven years. Mm-hmm. And we were, were actually we had actually started the band before that. So we were not new. It was not like some new some new band. And we, you know... I think we knew, we all knew that it wasn't going to last forever. And this was our chance to actually get ahead financially. Um, even though we, you know, we were treated fine by touch and go and we were earning a decent living, but we weren't getting ahead. And, and by signing that contract, we did. And, um, yes, but as far as integrity, yeah, 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 I feel like we were definitely one of the more legitimate bands of that era you know we fought for everything we had we started with nothing and we fought for every sale there was no there was no bullshit involved there was no ridiculous promotion we didn't there was no big movie that made us famous there was no whatever it was strictly word of mouth from the albums and the live performances mm-hmm. um when we made the jump to capital you know what, what I find what's laughable to me now, and I, I just I was talking about this with someone the other night, is someone we were perceived as sellouts. Well, listen, the, the amount of money that we actually got, you know, I'm not going to go into any details of figures, but I thought about this. It was, you know, it was it was just somewhere just over a million dollars, like a million point four something like that between the records and the publishing. So think about that. That's split between four guys. Yeah. Plus we paid for two albums out of that. We recorded two albums in professional studios with, with producers paid for those two paid the management, his cut and paid our lawyer, her cut and split up what was left. And people were complaining about that. So nowadays the kind of money that gets thrown around now for albums and publishing and licensing and touring People would, that wouldn't be enough for even one person. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Nowadays, one person would get that and no one would bat an eye. They'd say, gee, you're not, you didn't get very much on that deal, Bob. But we, we split it four ways, paid for two albums, and then paid for two other people out of it. And somehow we were villains. Mm-hmm. It's comical. Yeah. It's just comical to me now. But there's also, and, there's also this, what also comes through in the book, though, is this kind of, I feel like, and I, I maybe I don't know if I've misread this or not. And I'm I'm de- debating about it, but 
I feel like David Sims seems to personify, like Steve Albini becomes this personification of this debate, where there's, I found that throughout the book, there's these kind of jabs at Steve's recordings and Steve's kind of mentality about the band. I feel like there was this real friction between the touch and go period and the capital period. It was, and, and I feel like David Sims in particular, who I'm still hoping to speak with, um, uh-huh. really took that hard. And I, I was surprised by that. Like there just seems it's very heated between the, and even when in Steve's thing, he kind of sends a, right. a jab at, at David as well. Something yeah. really deteriorated there. And then I feel like that is some kind of manifestation of the severance between underground and overground culture that the band yeah. ended up. Well, there's, I think that's stuff between them and I think that's personal stuff. And I think it goes back even to rape man, yeah. which David mentions. And, um, you know, you well, you'll have to talk to them about it. You yeah. should ask them about it because <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. But um, I only ask you about this in the abstract because I, I know that, it, uh, and I'm not sure I want to involve Steve in this at all, um, because I feel like it's the story of the band, and I've, you know, Steve and I have spoken, I don't know, many, many times, and okay. I could, I could totally call him up and probably talk to him about this, but I kind of want to make this the band story on some level. However. I, yeah, I, I mean, this is this. It's the book, and he he spoke in the book. And now, if you want to do interviews and you know about that, yeah, I don't think you necessarily need to talk to anyone. <laughs> it's it's besides the band. I know it's there. It's all there. Even even the band has kind of conveyed everything. But my my question though is, if you can speak about that divide abstractly, you know, without the without the two, I know that I'm saying like it seems like a David versus Steve thing. But this also seems to, as I say, it seems to be a manifestation of a perception of Steve representing the backlash. You know, Steve, as I recall, I mean, Steve was very vocal about... Yes, he was, but... Okay, let me cut in right here, because I find this sort of tiresome. Um, (laughs) Steve was, yes, he was very vocal, but why is it that people even listened to him when he was making big money producing major label records by who by people like nirvana page and plant um etc the pixies etc why is it that he gets to take major label money and we don't and we're the bad guys why does he get the moral high ground that's what i've been saying all along to the point where i'm tired of talking about it right right i i have i have nothing personal against steve I really don't. Mm -hmm. I ran into him. We ran into him on the reunion tour somewhere at a festival and said, hello, shook hands. You know, I have nothing. I have no problem with him. But when this subject comes up, I'm just tired of it. And I'm tired of, and he knows this. He's, I've, I've been speaking about this for ages, but the fact that he was allowed to have the bully pulpit, so to speak, when he was the one making big money from major label productions and we were the bad guys because we split up some money basically six ways when what now is you can see is not that much money it was just it's it's it still makes me mad it's a very honest. it's a very good point and i it's not something i've pondered that much as well but i mean no, I, and that's fine. I appreciate that you're tired of, of addressing it. Um, it, but it does. It is something that comes through. It's weird. That's the thing. Like I've, these stories were kind of you'd hear about them. Kind of this is the first time you you 
in this book where I feel like both sides are kind of articulate articulated in a way. And it's a sense that I get from reading particularly David and Steve speaking, you know, that this mm-hmm. is just something that is festered forever. Yeah, but there definitely seems to be a little something between them. Yeah. So than the rest of us. Yeah. Okay. But, you know. And I mean, the other surprising thing that I, I think that will surprise some folks is that there seems to be this consensus that Down was a disaster. That the, the making of Down and the final <laughs> record was just a complete disaster. The vibe wasn't the same as the other ones. Um, you know, there were some good tunes on there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, uh, you know, just the vibe wasn't as good. I thought that um, the recording wasn't as good. And especially the vocals are just very muffled and indistinct. And uh, we re- even remixed it at one point. But, you know, there's only so much you can do there. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, there's still there's still good stuff on there. And I think it's still it's all right. But it, um, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, hey, I have to man, I, I do have things I got to do. I, um, how much? How much? I'm sorry. How how much longer are we? Oh no, we're, do we need we're, to we're 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 just done. I, the only thing I wanted to ask about is during the the reenactment tour, I was just curious if there was anything close to. Did you say reenactment? Yeah, that's what David Yao has taught me to say. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, he he, uh, he he insists that it's a reenactment tour. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, to me, reenactment would be if you're. <sighs> like the between song patter, you know, playing this, the exact same venues. Um, there actually was like a kind of a punk rock reenactment movement. I think I knew someone in Detroit that was connected with it where they would have exactly the same gear, but whatever. I, I, it doesn't matter. No, I, yeah, I don't know. David, D- David has just drilled it into me that I'm, I was just sort of quoting him there, paraphrasing him. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, I was just curious about, I guess my fundamental question here is, does this book seem like the final chapter to you? Was there any sense during the, the tour where, where you felt like there could be ideas percolating here? Because I know David Yao has been very adamant that he has no interest in pursuing music in general, but do you feel like there is a... F- and maybe you can't say never, but do you feel like there's some kind of future for this band? Uh... Well, there's no immediate future, <laughs> and that, that's the only one I uh, that I go by anymore. I mean, there's nothing happening. Um, we've all got other things going on. Um, you know, the idea of somehow recording new new material had come up, and yes, David was the only one really who seemed to just be completely opposed to the idea. Um, for me. Personally, I could take it or leave it. I've got other things going on, and you know, I whenever I, I like to focus on, I, I've only got so many ideas left. I feel like, and I, I need to focus them on what I'm working on or new things happening. Um, so, on the one hand, it would have been nice, and I feel like the time would have been right. For instance, maybe now, if we had had something out, you know, to, to go with the book, you know, for extra, extra, you know, uh, impact yeah. on the. But um, I feel like just as you get it, with every passing year, it gets harder to to do it. Um, I felt like even playing shows, like there was a lot of anticipation back in 2009, and it worked out just perfectly to have the reissues out. And there was a lot of intensity and excitement. You know, we hadn't played together in ages, and um, 
you know, who knows? I'm not ruling it out. There was a lot of places we didn't go, you know, on that thing. And if something were to come up and everyone was into it, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, yeah, we probably could make a really good album. Um, but I'm, the, I'm not going to force it. You know, I'm not going to put be pushy about it or whatever. And when, especially if I've got other things going on, I, I, I feel like, and I think David more than anything, he's, it's almost become a cliche, hasn't it? Where these bands, you know, get back together, do these reunion things, and then they put their albums out and they're usually almost always not very good, aren't they? Yeah. Um, um, the only, I swear, the only one I've heard that I thought was was actually really good was Magazine, that Know Thyself. Have you heard that album? No, I haven't. Well, see, there you go. Um, but, and so to Dave, to me, I think David sees that as the cliche or these bands, they get, they do a reunion and then they never stop. They just keep going and putting out albums. It used to be you toured to sell the album mm-hmm. and now you put out albums to sell the tour. Right. That's how it's flip-flopped. So I think David doesn't want to fall into that. And, you know, out of all of us, he's obviously physically took the most abuse over the years, both internally and externally. So, uh, you know, I understand his point. Right. Well, Dwayne, I, I appreciate all of your time. Sorry we went uh, late and we're a day early, but I do appreciate uh, all your insights here. Well, that's great. I appreciate it. Thanks for calling me. I, I thank you for being interested. And in the end, it was, uh, it was pleasant. You know, you asked all the questions that I am perfectly happy to blab about. <laughs> In the exciting conclusion to the Jesus Lizard Week on this show, tomorrow an interview with bassist and I think primary band archivist David Williams Sims. Join us, won't you? Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.